Christian, so now I fully know and I want to commit 100% of my life to God, so I'm publicly pronouncing my faith. I want to baptize because I want to commit to the Lord, and then I want to be like a true believer, not just do, uh, sitting, listen, and not doing anything, just like action. I want to get baptized to show everyone that I love Jesus. step to commit myself to God and to follow Him and to have a personal relationship with Him and the fact that He commands it and I just love God so much and I've been blessed by His love. God dramatically changed my life. And you can't take away what the world didn't give. We were made for more. We were made for more at the end of the day. great. Well, that gives you a little taste of what we'll experience next Sunday evening at Corona Del Mar and a little taste of what we're going to experience right now as part of United Sermon Series. We're going to unpack exactly what baptism is all about. Maybe a refresher course for some of us, maybe brand new for others, but our prayer is In fact, every seat that you're sitting in has been prayed for specifically for this time. Our prayer is that you're encouraged this morning as we walk through this idea of baptism. You're challenged in some ways and you're molded and shaped to look more like Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the hope for today. I also recognize that many of us here have Olympic fever. Anybody have Olympic fever here? Anybody feel the warmth of the evening last night as well as you laid in your bed at midnight and couldn't sleep? Okay, I know what I'm up against. You've been up since 1230 every night this week. I got to keep it going so uh, you stay awake. (laughs) Really glad you're here. If you will, turn to Acts chapter 8. We're going to look in at verse 25. Acts 8, 25. Acts was written by Luke. It's actually what we'd call the sequel, the second volume to the Gospel of Luke. And in Acts chapter 8, we read one of the most beautiful stories that I can remember reading in the Bible. 
Acts 8.25. And this is what it says. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and he went and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and he was returning and sitting in his chariot. And get this, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So there was this Ethiopian who had traveled through what we call modern day Sudan, up through Egypt and made his way to Jerusalem. It's quite a travel in the first century. He went there as a God-fearing person to have a religious experience. He went to the temple most likely, spent time observing worship, worshiped himself. And now he's on his way back to his home country. It says that he was in charge of the money of his country. So he probably was doing pretty well. He's sitting in his chariot and he's reading the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Most likely he had heard this book read when he was in Jerusalem. And so now he's doing his own Bible study, so to speak, on this. And then keep reading here, verse 29. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. And we know this is Isaiah 53, the perfect passage to share with a Jewish person. Isaiah 53 says this, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. Then the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or is it someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road. They came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch. And he baptized him. And if this story doesn't get any crazier, look at the next verse, verse 39 here of Acts 8. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch, get this, no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. Isn't this incredible? Maybe you've heard this passage before, but it's worth examining as we begin our talk on baptism. You have the first African convert described here in Acts chapter 8. He'd be followed by some incredible people, Clement of Alexandria, Augustine, the great theologian. Today, there are about 380 million Jesus followers in Africa. And it started with this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch in charge of the queen's money, 
taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, has some of his questions answered, but is still rather confused, leaves Jerusalem thinking, okay, my quest is done. The Spirit of God leads Philip to him. Philip preaches Jesus from the Old Testament. This guy becomes a Christian, a follower of Christ, and then goes, oh, by the way, there's some water. Let's, let's get baptized. And then Philip just disappears. And the Ethiopian goes back to his home country as a Jesus follower, praising, celebrating this miracle of a life change. This is radical, isn't it? Okay, take this story and let's somehow transfer it into 2016. Say after this morning, you go to the Tustin Irvine Marketplace and you're there enjoying um, a nice lunch after church and relaxing. And then as you get up to leave and go back to the parking lot, you notice that there's a guy and he's sitting at a table by himself and he's reading a Bible. And you think, well, I was just inspired at Calvary and just want to maybe kind of put something out there. I'm just going to congratulate him on reading the Bible. And so you walk past his table and you say, hey, that's a great book that you're reading there. And he looks up at you and goes, yeah, I'm really enjoying it, but I'm reading here in Isaiah 53 and I have no idea what it's talking about. Would you know? Can you imagine if this was like unfolding today? And you go, well, actually, I, I know a thing or two. I'm no Bible expert, but let me sit down and let me talk to you about who Isaiah 53 is mentioning. And so you sit there at that table and you explain Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives you the words. You can't take any credit for it yourself. And this man at Tustin Marketplace becomes a believer this afternoon, sitting at a table with you. And then he looks over. Next to his table is a fountain. And he goes, hey, well, isn't there supposed to be like some type of public proclamation when I become a Christian? And you both kind of look at each other and you take off your shoes and you jump in the fountain. And you baptize him, the very first person you've ever baptized. I'm not sure if you're doing it right, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, yeah. And you dunk him, pull him up, and he's cheering, you're cheering, you give each other a hug. And then Irvine Company's finest security guard shows up (laughs) on his bicycle and says, what are you doing? What exactly is going on here? And you have this sheepish grin on your face and you're like, I, I it became a Christian, Isaiah Bible, Cal, Calvary Church, Matt Doan. <laughs> you just got to throw me under the bus. Let's fill the bus. It's appropriate. Maybe that's not a likely scenario, but maybe this scenario is more likely. Next Sunday evening, you're down at Corona Del Mar and you're watching our church celebrate baptism. And you're watching people wade out into the water about waist deep. And you're watching them get dunked backwards and pulled out of the water. And people are cheering and they're videotaping and taking photos on their phone. And you're just kind of taking it all in with a big smile from the bluffs looking down at the cove. And then this family who just happened to be at the beach that day walks by you. And they notice what's going on down there. And they notice that you're kind of part of it. And they look at you and they say, hey, no offense, we're not really church people. What exactly are you doing? (laughs) What would you say? How would you explain baptism to someone with no context? 
that genuinely wants to know, what would you unpack? Where would you go? There was a kid in Sunday school who was recorded saying this when it came to baptism. He said, it's when the preacher holds you underwater and you think about Jesus. (laughs) I like that. But is there more than that? Some rich, incredible things that are happening when we celebrate the ordinance of baptism. And we as believers, followers of Jesus can be united around what's actually happening in baptism. Last week we talked about communion. Tonight, today, baptism. In the next couple weeks, to give you a preview, we're going to talk about being united around God's word, the scriptures. We're actually on the stage going to roll out a big old Torah and talk about the inerrancy and inspiration of the scriptures. But today as we talk about baptism, let's unpack what exactly is baptism. In your program that you got or bulletin, there's some notes. You can pull those out. Those will be helpful to you because we're going to bounce around a couple of different places. And I know you're tired from the Olympics and I want you to follow this because this is key. So turn with me from Acts chapter 8 and go backwards in your Bible to Matthew chapter 3. It's the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel, Matthew 3. Specifically look at verse 13. As we begin to answer the question, what exactly are we doing when it comes to baptism? Matthew 3, verse 13. This is what it says. Then Jesus, I'm in Matthew 3, 13, arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Here's a photo, I don't even know if you can see this, of a map of the nation of Israel in the first century. So up in the north you had Galilee. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is fed by ultimately Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon, the water uh, pours down there, it streams down, fills up the Sea of Galilee, and from there it becomes the Jordan River. It's actually the Jordan on both sides of the Sea of Galilee. Jordan River flows all the way down to the Dead Sea. So John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, comes from Jerusalem and he goes out east to the Jordan River. Many Jewish people hear about what he's doing. It's radical. No one's ever done this before, baptizing Jews. They've baptized Gentiles, but never Jews. And so people begin to flock from Jerusalem out to the Jordan River to see what this guy wearing crazy clothes and eating bugs and insects. What's this guy doing? It's kind of more of a curiosity thing than um, a faith journey for many. Jesus is in the Sea of Galilee region and he comes down from the north and meets the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. That's what Matthew 3 unpacks. Today, there are still many people that make this pilgrimage to the Jordan River. In fact, just two months ago, this is Pastor Matt Davis and Dan and Annika Herring uh, being baptized. Annika's being baptized here in the Jordan. This is just in June. It's a really cool scene. And so this river has some historical significance here. This is where John was baptized, and this is where Jesus comes. And look what John says in verse 14. Matthew 3:14. But John tried to prevent him saying, "I have a need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me?" 
John immediately recognizes who Jesus is. He recognizes that he has no business having any authority over Jesus. Although John is known as the baptizer, this is the first person that he's ever paused or balked at to baptize because he gets who he's talking to. But look at Jesus' response, verse 15. But Jesus answered him saying, permit it at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he, John, permitted him. So people were coming out to look at what John was doing in the Jordan. And then as people heard John's message of repent, be baptized, there were people that were repenting of their sins. And now as an outward sign of their inward repentance, being baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus comes on the scene. John says, I am not worthy to do this. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I must have you do this because I am the righteous one. And the time has come for me to show my righteousness. So Jesus is being baptized, not like anyone else, for the repentance of his sins because Jesus was the spotless lamb. Instead, Jesus being the only sinless one to ever exist was being baptized to show that he already was righteous. In fact, John recognizes this when he says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's recorded as saying this in the Gospel of John around this same scene of Jesus' baptism. Just to show you the power of God's word too, last week I met a former KGB Russian agent named Sasha. KGB is like the CIA of Russia. He said, I was a bad man. I did really bad things. But one day I heard this verse translated into Russian and I became a Christian. Isn't that incredible? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John proclaims he knows who Jesus is. So Jesus gets baptized not because of his sin, but to show that he is the one that sinners must turn to. And here's a kind of amazing thing. Priests in biblical times would enter into the ministry of priesthood at the age of 30. Luke 3, commenting here on the baptisms, says, oh, by the way, Jesus, at the time of his baptism, is 30. A priest at the age of 30 would have a ceremonial cleansing. They would go into the temple or tabernacle and and be cleansed to show that they were being set apart for ministry. Jesus' baptism was his entrance into the priesthood. He's 30 years old. This is his ceremonial cleansing. And then a priest would have a blessing poured out on him, an Aaronic blessing, as he replaced maybe the former priest. Jesus also has a blessing here in his baptism. Look at Matthew 3.16. After being baptized, Jesus came out, came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
Talk about a powerful blessing. So Jesus is being baptized not because he needed to have repentance, but to show that he's the righteous one. Jesus is being baptized to show that he's the ultimate priest who's about to partake in the ultimate sacrifice, the spotless lamb, his own body, taken to the tree for our sin. It's incredible what's going on here out there in the Jordan River. So much more than probably any of the onlookers even understood. John the Baptist had kind of this glimpse of what was happening, but even he probably never even knew the magnitude of what was happening as he participated in Jesus' baptism. When we follow Jesus' example in baptism, we are also showing the world that Jesus is the righteous one. Just as Jesus demonstrated that in his own baptism, we show the world when we're baptized. And then here's another thing I want you to get from Jesus' baptism. Is that the word used here in Matthew chapter 3, both in um, verses 13, 14, and 16, is this word baptizo. Makes sense, baptism, baptizo. There was actually different words, though, to describe the process of a baptism. There was words for pour, there was words for sprinkle, but the gospel writers and the New Testament authors specifically and intentionally used this word baptizo to talk about Jesus' baptism. Baptizo, as you can see on the screen, means to dip or to immerse. It was a word that was used in other contexts as well. I'm still here, don't worry. Um, Often when people would dye cloth. They would say that they baptizo the cloth. They would take a a white cloth like this. They would dip it into the dye and they would dip it all the way in so that it soaked through and then they would have a new colored cloth. Can you clap? That's pretty impressive, right? Wow. (laughs) Actually, sadly, uh, our staff and I were practicing this the last couple days. Um, Notice the change. It's dipped all the way in. It's immersed in water and it changes color, right? And so the authors of of the New Testament knew that this word was used to connote dipping, immersing, and also change. About 200 years before Jesus was born, there was a guy named Nicander. Nicander talked about making pickles, He said, you take a cucumber, you put it into vinegar, and over time, voila, you have a pickle. He said, specifically, 200 years before Jesus was born, you baptizo the cucumber into the vinegar. You put it all the way in to make a pickle. Just a side note, this is just humorous maybe to me, but maybe you'll like it too. Um, I bought this on Friday so I could show you this morning. My wife was making hamburgers to barbecue on Friday night. And she goes, well, I was going to make hamburgers, but I don't have any pickles. And I was like, that's such a weird thing to say because I just bought an entire jar of pickles. And so there's one missing pickle in here. But um, <laughs> picture this when you think of Jesus' baptism. Dunked, plunged, immersed, dipped into the water. And then there's a change. Baptism symbolizes a changed life. I want you to remember that as we think through baptisms in our culture. So this leads us to our second point, and that's this idea. 
is that not only do we follow Jesus' example in baptism, but we also are identifying with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ when we participate in baptism. This is really powerful. I want you to see Romans chapter 6. Go from Matthew 3 over to Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 3. And we read this. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of of life. Notice that word change. Think of a pickle. It's been changed. Verse 5 For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Look at verse 7. This is so life-giving for us. For he who has died is freed from sin. Amen. Romans 6, let me be very clear here, is talking about spiritual baptism. Our union with Jesus Christ when you place your faith in Jesus. When that happens, you're united with Jesus Christ in a couple of amazing ways. You see, Jesus died for sins. When you place your faith in Jesus, you're united with Jesus' death, punishment, penalty for sin. But then here's really good news too. Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He overcame death. When you place your faith in Jesus, you're united. You also overcome sin and conquer death. That's the spiritual reality of what's happening when you place your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior and leader of your life. This is great news. But over the course of centuries, really, and it happens today, there's people that get confused about what exactly water baptism means and how our identity changes. There's some that falsely believe that your identity from death to life changes actually in water baptism. But if you look at the scriptures, we see that that's not the case. Romans 10, 9, it's behind me, says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see the word baptism in here anywhere? Look for it. Do you see it? Is that word anywhere on the screen? All right, I'm, maybe I'm being a little bit cheesy here, but you get it, right? This is the way to be saved. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, and you'll be saved. So I want us to hear this clearly. If you're talking to a family at Corona del Mar and they're looking down at the beach, they're watching these baptisms, be clear on this. Water baptism isn't a ticket to heaven. 
Faith in Jesus Christ is what unites you to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's this beautiful passage from Ephesians 2 which says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Baptism without faith is simply getting wet. Faith in Jesus Christ is what starts the whole process. So what exactly is water baptism then? It's an outward symbol and a sign of an inward personal faith. It's an outward symbol of what's already happened internally as your identity has been changed from a sinner who has an eternity of hell. You've been changed through faith in Christ to a saint who has the eternity of heaven. This is the good news of Jesus. Baptism is a symbol of that. Now, when we talk about baptizo, the idea of immersing or dipping, there's a couple of cool things to relate to this idea of identifying with the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. You see, when we baptize you under the water, that's symbolizing that you were dead in your sins. That if you stayed under the water, you would eventually die. There was a, a, a little girl here a couple years ago, and Matt Davis was baptizing her. And she said, Pastor Matt, can you hold me under for three seconds? Because Jesus died and was in the grave for three days. So I think I should be under the water for three seconds. I was like, wow, it's it's pretty profound, actually. And so Matt actually did. He did 1,001, 1,002. I was getting nervous, like, pull her out! 1,003. She came out of the water. When you're under the water in water baptism, that's signifying that you were a dead person walking without Jesus. Sure, you were alive on the outside, but your spirit, your soul was dead apart from Jesus Christ. So in water baptism, you're symbolizing that. But then the good news is, as you're pulled out of the water, it's symbolizing what Romans 6.4 is talking about, the newness of life. That because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you are identified with the resurrection of Jesus, conquering sin and death. You're made alive In Jesus Christ. You were dead and now you're alive. That's what it's symbolizing. Now, that's not happening actually in the water at Corona del Mar, but that's symbolizing in the water at Corona del Mar what's already happened eternally. Are you with me? And so, if someone said, What exactly is baptism? you'd say, It's following the example of Jesus, it's identifying with the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And according to Matthew 28, it's obeying Jesus' command. If you're in Romans 6, go back one more time to Matthew. Matthew 28. This passage is often referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus has already rose from the dead at this point. He's the resurrected Savior. He's with 11 of the disciples, minus Judas. And he says these words to him. These are his last recorded words as described from Matthew. Before he ascends to heaven, this is what Jesus says. Matthew 28, 18. 
And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This passage right here is one of the reasons that we're so passionate about global missions here at Calvary Church. We take the final words of Jesus seriously, that we're to send people to go into the nations, to disciple them, which is a fancy word for saying, making followers, believers of Jesus Christ, and then to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. At baptisms here at Calvary, we actually say those words as we dunk each person in the water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's in direct relation connection here to Matthew 28. If you think about it, there's not a lot we can give God. God doesn't necessarily need our money. God doesn't necessarily need our time, our talent. But you know what's amazing about what God asks of of us? He says, simply give me your obedience. That's something that I need and accept. Think about that. How do you respond to someone who's changed your identity, who's brought you from death to life? What's the one thing you can give him? Your obedience. Your loving obedience. Jesus says here, go into the nations, make disciples, and baptize. One of the reasons we do this crazy thing where we wade in the water and we dunk people under the water, we come out and we cheer, it's because Jesus told us to do that. And we're obeying that call. The first century church took this call really seriously. All throughout the book of Acts, you see these radical identity changes. In Acts chapter 9, you see Paul, a murderer, a persecutor of Christians, being changed by Jesus Christ. And then in Acts 9, he's baptized to proclaim what inwardly has already happened in his life. In Acts chapter 10, you see the very first non-Jewish person baptized by Peter. Complete radical life change. In Acts chapter 16, you see Lydia, the first European Christian. Her whole family and her are baptized as believers in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 16, the Roman jailer has this amazing conversion and is baptized along with his whole family. In Acts chapter 18, one of the Jewish religious leaders, Crispus, is baptized as a new believer follower of Jesus. In Acts chapter 19, the very first Christians in Turkey are baptized You see these radical, radical life changes in the first century church. And all of these radical life changes are accompanied after faith in Christ by baptism. The early church took baptisms seriously. We should too. It's amazing to think too that when each of us is baptized as a believer in Christ, we're connected to a larger global family. I'll never forget being in Ecuador, in the jungles of Ecuador, with Chet and Katie Williams a few years ago. Literally out in the middle of nowhere. And one of the students that was on our team, Mark Munzing, said, I want to get baptized here in Ecuador, in this jungle. And so he went out into the water with Chet and the pastor of this small jungle church. 
And all of the jungle, the village, even non-believers came around and watched. And our whole team was there. It's the very first place that I've ever worried in a baptism of like someone going under and like being bit by a piranha or something. <laughs> it was pretty murky water. Uh, and Mark went in the water and came out and the whole village just cheers. And we didn't understand each other language wise, but there was this universal understanding of what we were doing. We were connected through proclaiming Christ in baptism. When you're baptized, you connect yourself to even a larger church family who has also been baptized. It's really cool. Maybe you saw the email this week. There was a girl uh, in Malaysia. She came to her church to be baptized. Missionary named Jim Dennison was there to observe the baptisms. And he noticed that this girl, during her baptism, had brought suitcases. And she had set aside those suitcases next to the tub, and she got in. Jim was from Texas, and he wasn't really familiar with kind of what they do here in Malaysia. And so he asked the pastor afterwards, he said, why did she bring the suitcases? Pastor said, her family told her that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never return home. So she brought all that she owns with her, realizing that following Christ is the most important thing. Here in Orange County, we don't have the threat necessarily, at least yet, of being baptized and then having to radically change our lives. And yet I kind of envy our friends in other parts of the world who have those type of stakes when it comes to publicly saying that I'm a Christian. And although we don't have those type of persecution type, I guess, worries, I don't want us to miss how important and crucial baptism is. We're following the example of Jesus. We're identifying with the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. We're obeying the call and command of Jesus Christ. These are worthwhile things, aren't they? These are reasons to be baptized. Why are you doing this? I think these are good reasons. I want to come back to Acts chapter 8 where we started. Verse 36, you can see it on the screen. The Ethiopian believed, and then he said, look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Let me break those words off of the page and actually point them in front of you. Let me ask you that very question. What prevents you from being baptized? Maybe you've been a Christian a long time and there's some pride in you that's like, uh, I've been at Calvary a while. It'd be kind of embarrassing to admit I've never been baptized and I'm just not going to do it. Maybe you're shy. Saying, standing in front of people, being in the spotlight, I just, I, I can't do it. Maybe you're just waiting for that perfect moment when everything in your life is perfect and you're completely holy and you no longer have any worries or anything and then you'll be baptized. Let me st- encourage you that baptism is a beginning in the journey. It's not the culmination of a journey. What's preventing you or holding you back from being baptized? Just so happens that we're talking about this subject and we have a baptism next Sunday. (laughs) I want to challenge you. The Holy Spirit may be working on several of you in this room. He's calling you to be obedient, to identify with Christ to follow his example. 
go for it. Don't hold back. Now's the time. In a moment, we're going to respond in worship through music. And this today is actually going to serve as your baptism class for those of you that are ready to be baptized. And what you'll do, I encourage you, is when we stand to worship, I would ask you just to come up here to the front, to your right, my left. Connect with one of our pastors and elders. Tell them you're ready to be baptized as a believer in Christ. And they'll walk you through some next steps from there. Don't waste this opportunity. Respond to what God's calling you to respond to. On the backside of your notes, I want you to see that real quick. Everyone turn there to the backside. The front side is meant to how you'd respond to someone who's asking you, what exactly are you doing? The backside gets a little bit deeper. It walks through things like, is it okay to be rebaptized? What's the deal with infant baptism versus um, immersion, sprinkling, pouring? Um, how old should I be when I get baptized? I would encourage you, if you have thoughts or ideas or questions, start here. Read that. And then I'd love to chat with you afterwards in dialogue if you have any follow-up questions with that too. Let me pray and let's continue in worship. Father, we praise you that you went before us, you lived in this world, you lived the life that none of us could live. You went to the cross willingly, shed your blood, died, were buried, but then the grave could not hold you. We praise you, God, that you have overcome death. You have victory over sin. God, thank you for providing us a way out of sin. Thank you through faith in you of uniting us to you, your death, your life, your resurrection. God, thank you for giving us an identity change, new life. God, I pray that we'd proclaim that not only just in our water baptism, but we'd proclaim that every single day as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Come up front if you'd like to be baptized this week. Yeah, during this response time, would everybody stand, please? I invite you to stand.